Welcome to the eighth episode of the National University of Singapore Middle East Institute podcast series, Boots of the Ground, Security in Transition from the Middle East and Beyond. In this series, we look at the future of warfare. We will see uniformed soldier or boots on the ground being replaced by private military company, autonomous weapon system and cyber weapon. This week, we continue a discussion of one of a key running team in our series the possibilities and limitation in regulating private military and security company. My name is Alessandro Guino, and I will be the co-host for this series, along with my colleague, Amin Lutfi. We are very glad to have with us today, Professor Simon Chesterman. Professor Chesterman is currently the Dean of the National University of Singapore Faculty of Law, and he has early taught at a range of institutions, including University of Melbourne, Oxford, Columbia, and NYU. He's a leading scholar in the field of international law and is the author of 17 books. For the purpose of today's discussion, I would mention two edited volumes, considered foundational in the study of military privatization, namely from mercenary to market, the rise and regulation of private military company, and private security, public order the outsourcing of public service and its limit. Thank you very much, Simon, for being with us today. It's a pleasure to be here, thank you. Yeah, it's great having you here with us, uh, Professor Chesterman. Uh, just to kick off the discussion today, I wanna to plug you into this debate that we've been having across this podcast series uh, on this issue of defining private military and security actors. So essentially, we've had two sides. One that's called for a catch-all term, let's say mercenary, that each time you talk about specific thing, you, you specify it as you go along. And this other camp that says, no, you actually have to have precise legal definition and precise categories for the different types of players, the different activities and the different scenarios in which they operate. So I wanna get your opinion on where do you stand on this? And is there a, a working definition that you're most comfortable with? So thanks. I mean, in, in law, definitions are, of course, important. Uh, but even more important, I think, is interrogating why one wants to define a term and what one is trying to achieve. Uh, and if I can pick up an alternative controversial term, the definition of terrorist also provides enormous grist for the mill uh, because there are competing reasons why one is trying to define that term. In terms of mercenary or private military security company, um, I, I mean, you see a similar dynamic. The, the term mercenary uh, was uh, originally intended in the 1980s, at least, to uh, try and define someone who was a, an illegitimate actor. And the mistake that was made, and this is in the convention, convention the 1989 Convention on Mercenarism, uh, is it defined it by, re by reference to motive. So, uh, a mercenary was defined as someone who's fighting outside traditional military forces and is quote unquote motivated essentially by private interest. Uh, now this is a terrible definition partly because for the most part law really doesn't try to get inside the head of individuals to understand their motive. Uh, most laws uh, we, pay, we pay attention whether something is intentional or, or not whether someone intended to murder, whether someone intended to steal, we don't really care why. Uh, the context of why might come up on how you punish them. In the case of mercenarism, however, this was really an attempt to delegitimize a category of actor. 
Uh, and it's striking that mercenarism became so illegitimate in the, in the, 19, in the 20th century, given that a mere 200 years earlier, not a terribly long period of time in international legal terms, mercenarism was really the norm. I mean, terms like freelance today continue to be relevant because uh, that, that used to be a reference to someone who was free and had a lance. Uh, the Pope continues to be guarded by what is essentially a mercenary force. Uh, and so that, that attempt to define mercenarism was, was doubly, doubly flawed, I think. One, because it was attempting to delegitimize a category of actor um, on the basis of their motivation. And underlying that was uh, the, the reason uh, was concern about the role these people had been playing in wars either to overthrow governments in Africa or to oppose um, self-determination movements in Africa. Um, and so I don't, I don't agree with that kind of definition. I think it's unhelpful. It's also unworkable. Jeffrey Best, I think, was the, the military historian who said anyone who was convicted of being a mercenary under that very limited definition should be shot. And then the lawyer should be shot as well because it's such a, a ridiculous definition. It should be easy for a lawyer to disprove. So to answer your question, I do think there is a reason to be concerned, but I would be more targeted rather than delegitimizing a category of actor. To me, um, the private military and security company rhetoric uh, and uh, the valuable aspect of the language of mercenarism is it highlights a danger of an accountability deficit. And that accountability deficit comes in the first word, which is private. Uh, and so to me, the, the important aspect of the definition is someone who is engaging in military and security type activities, in particular, I would say, uh, situations involving the potentially lethal use of force, but in a private capacity outside of an accountability structure, traditionally in our terms, in the context of um, a, um, a standing military, subject to military justice, under a well-ordered state. So that, that would be the definition that I would lean towards. Uh, but then yes, you do have to drill down, okay, what are these military and security functions? Uh, it's probably more than just the contractor who does the laundry, but that's at one extreme. The other extreme is uh, someone who's engaged in, um, uh, in kinetic warfare, certainly that's included. And in between, you do have lots of marginal cases like the transportation companies uh, or the site security companies. Uh, and, and you would have to look at them quite closely. But yeah, I would come down on focusing on the word private uh, and the reason we're concerned about this, which is not because someone is being immoral, but because they're operating with lethal force in a situation where they might not be held accountable for that force. Thank you very much, Simon. I quite appreciated uh, the dynamic definition that you used in framing uh, from terrorism to mercenarism, but I'm not going to ask more about Pope and his Swiss guard. Uh, I want to take you uh, on another part of our ongoing discussion on private military and security, and it's about the preferred target for regulation. In your opinion, which strategy leave the smallest loophole uh, in regulating private military, especially from the point of view of an exporting state, but also from the importers? Yeah, so th this is a problem in lots of global activity or transboundary activity. Do you do you try and do things at the international level? Well, at the international level, you tend not to have real meaningful enforcement. Uh, it's at the state level that you have the possibility of enforcement. So should we look at, if you like, supply or demand? The advantage of the demand side is that's where the activities take place. That's where crimes, for example, might take place. 
The problem with that is private military and security companies tend to be most actively involved in states where traditional um, accountability institutions, law and order have broken down. Uh, and so in particular, if you look at some of the places where military security companies have been most active, um, Iraq, Sierra Leone, Afghanistan, for example, uh, they don't have functioning law and order regimes that are necessarily going to be helpful. Uh, and so I do think you need to focus on the supply side. Uh, and indeed, we've seen some moves in, um, in the, the US context, at least for contractors who are employed by the US military to be held accountable under um, an extension of the US military code of justice. Uh, and so if you are looking for effective accountability, you probably do need uh, at least to look to suppliers uh, rather than just relying on uh, the demand side. Uh, to continue this discussion, I mean, the question then becomes like, if we're talking about supply side regulations, then uh, what is the extent to which one should perhaps advocate or structure these regulations? Because again, you know, you run into the problem. If you're too strict with your regulations, then uh, they just go to another country. Or if you're too lax, then they become meaningless. So what, how do you find a balance between this? And to add on to this question, I know, I mean, there's one thing that you've discussed in your edited volumes too, this idea of uh, the market regulating itself or sort of like mar or, or the, the, the buyer-centric kind of regulations. Yeah, I mean, it's a similar argument to, uh, to tax regimes. If you tax people too much, they'll flee, or at least the rich people with ability will flee. And, and I think there's an element of that, but that doesn't mean we should engage in a race to the bottom. Um, I mean, in particular, uh, well-ordered countries with, uh, with big economies like the United States, the United Kingdom, uh, these, these are going to be desirable places for businesses to locate themselves. Um, countries like the United States with big operations, uh, big uh, presences around the world will have an interest in this type of company. Uh, but you're right that uh, if there is a lot of disaggregated activity around the world, uh, there's, a, there's a danger that uh, these organizations will either move or fragment, set up subsidiaries or, or alternative operations. Uh, and that's where actually the market does become quite important. Uh, because if you, if you have the emergence of a market, you delegitimize uh, the, uh, the, the race to the bottom. Uh, and indeed, this is where it's been quite striking that um, some of the private military security companies themselves have been trying to organize. We have uh, kind of industry associations, an effort to, to raise the standards, uh, if only to be able to charge higher fees. Uh, and actually, I see that as a valuable step. Uh, the maturing of the market does mean that it's possible uh, for those actors uh, to have a degree of self-regulation. Now, the problem with self-regulation, of course, is that there are a lot of vested interests. Uh, and self-regulation is not very good at establishing bright moral lines for things that you should not do. Uh, and so that's where I would come back to the idea of national and possibly international regulation, saying that, for example, in the extreme case, you can't engage in lethal uses of force without a meaningful accountability structure, which probably means coming under the, uh, the uniformed military of a, of a state, uh, that there should be, you could treat mercenaries in that true sense of people who are operating completely outside of state jurisdiction, treat them a bit like pirates uh, who become the enemies of all. Uh, because they stand not only for themselves and against the law, but against organized political structures as such. 
Um, so yeah, I think there's, there is a danger with regulating too hard because you'll push people offshore. But if you go too lax, uh, then, uh, then you won't have any meaningful accountability at all. Uh, and it's in recognition of that dynamic that some of the private military company, private military security companies themselves have seen that they need to, they want to avoid harsh regulation and they also want to avoid no regulation because they want to make money, but they also want to make it in a sustainable way. There will be more than just a few years of, uh, of rent seeking. They want to establish themselves as legitimate actors. Yes, when we were talking in our previous podcast uh, uh, with ICOCA or ISOA, for example, uh, uh, as you mentioned, uh, the race to the bottom is a common problem uh, from Iraq to China. But uh, if we want to look more at the uh, international regulation role, uh, Simon, you mentioned in your publication that Kofi Annan himself was uh, an advocate of privatization of global peacekeeping. Uh, at the time, perhaps uh, uh, it was too early. But now that uh, private military security are fast becoming the norm, do you see an expanded role for international peacekeeping from the private side, of course? Yeah, well, so Kofi Annan, who was Secretary General of the UN, I think that was uh, expressed in the context of, of some exasperation for want of alternatives. He was open to it. Uh, and this is in situations that the UN faces, like in the Rwandan genocide or the genocide in Darfur, where there's a clear crime against humanity taking place and no willingness for states to intervene. Uh, there was a serious conversation within the context of the UN whether a private military security company could offer some assistance. And, and it's interesting that there were two reasons that didn't happen. Uh, one was um, a, a real wariness about the politics of it, whether, whether states would be willing to countenance the privatization of peacekeeping, as it was said to be. Uh, but then the second problem was also just the expense. Uh, it would have been a lot more expensive uh, than a traditional peacekeeping operation. Uh, and so in the end, the UN just never really had the budget uh, and that, that was, was prohibitively expensive in its own right. Uh, but moving forward, the UN, it, it remains that first, actually both concerns remain, the, the politics of privatization and the cost. Uh, but on the politics, um, there has been a kind of privatization, not by stealth, but by default in the UN. So we do see now a lot more private contractors involved in the less controversial aspects of peacekeeping in the logistics, the, uh, the, the back end of operations. Uh, I think it's just necessary to, to rely on who's available and there's no principled reason, I think, that you should have a state-based organization providing the meals and basic transportation uh, as opposed to a contractor. Uh, so I think that will continue, uh, but I do think it would be, um, it'll be a long time before the UN is really ready to have the private actors at the, at the tip of the spear, if you like, in terms of an operation, uh, precisely because of the the experience through the 20th century of mercenarism, but also because in the context of the UN, this is much like the way in which the member states of the UN don't want the United Nations to have its own force. Uh, they don't want force to be used independently of member state regulation, which is why for the most part, when military activity does take place under UN auspices, it's both under national control, but also under pretty strictly defined mandates, either by the UN Security Council or in very rare circumstances under the authorization of the General Assembly. Uh, Fela Chistam, if I could just get your take on an issue that you've written a, a lot about, um, on the privatization of the 
private of, of the intelligence agencies and security or, and uh, um, like analysis. So is these like, are these kind of companies that do, uh, to, to, let's say intelligence operations or security analysis, do they raise specific kind of challenges that are peculiar to them uh, apart from the, the, what we're talking about sort of active combat uh, uh, private military companies? Yeah, um, uh, there's similar concerns, but in some ways more extreme. Uh, because if the concerns of private military security companies uh, that uh, associate with PMSCs is that if the concern is that um, force will be used in a manner that could harm individuals outside of a regime of accountability, uh, that is even more extreme in the context of intelligence services, uh, both in terms of covert action, uh, if we're thinking about the kind of James Bond style assassinations and so on, but also just in terms of uh, regular espionage, uh, the infringement of civil liberties. Uh, and here the extreme case is um, that um, citizens will not know uh, and that there will not, not be any accountability. Indeed, it's striking that in some situations, states have relied on uh, private companies to do these things precisely to keep it outside of accountability structures. Again, we say that both in the context of PMSCs. So during the Iraq war, after the United States, the largest contingent of individuals in the Iraq theater were contractors. Uh, and that was not because they were cheaper. It was because that, that way they did not appear on the list either of nationals who were in theater, nor did the casualties appear as list of um, deceased individuals from the different member states. Uh, in the context of intelligence services, um, it's, it's particularly difficult in terms of accountability because at the best of times, spies quite understandably try to re remain below the radar. It's very hard to hold spies accountable. And if you've got that extra layer of insulation from government accountability, uh, and we saw that also in the context of the United States after September 11, uh, then, uh, then the accountability question is amplified. Now, in this context, it is possible to imagine a market kind of developing. Uh, and markets can work when there's a, a competitive environment with free exchange of information uh, and an expectation of repeat encounters. Uh, and that's when self-regulation can be most effective. The problem is that both for PMSCs and for intelligence services, none of those three things really exist. There tend not to be a lot of actors that you can choose between uh, because uh, again, just to stick with the United States, you need individuals with security clearances. Those tend to be relatively limited. Free exchange of information, well, that's kind of the antithesis of intelligence gathering. Uh, An expectation of repeat encounters also doesn't tend to, uh, to be a feature of the situations in which you are outsourcing these either military or intelligence activities. It tends to be to deal with a crisis rather than a situation where you think, well, this is going to be the normal. Uh, and indeed, that, that's one of the reasons why bureaucrats will turn to outsourcing, uh, because you can have surge capacity. Uh, and that's maybe good economically in the medium term because you don't have to build whole departments or build new divisions of your military, uh, but it uh, it is at the short at the expense of short term accountability. No, I, I do believe that definitely there are growing concern about private military companies uh, in terms of uh, how to outsource, how to regulate it properly. But it's quite interesting that up to now there is not much talk, and I mean public talk, about the private intelligence service. And that's, uh, that's quite concerning. 
Uh, one other comment that ran across your writing uh, uh, and uh, is that as the first to regulate in private security, state need to decide on functions. What are the functions that are inherently governmental? And in your opinion, what might some of these uh, government functions include? Let's say there can be a universal answer to this question or each state have to find uh, an ad hoc solution and decide for themselves. Yeah, I mean, I think th this uh, this goes to the nature of the very idea of the state. Uh, and we see this in different, um, uh, emerges in different directions in uh, different states. So the United States, for example, tends to have um, a long tradition of suspicion of government and uh, valorization of pri the private sector. Uh, and so in the US context of the language of inherently governmental services, uh, you have a presumption that things should be private sector unless there's a justification for government uh, engaging in a particular type of activity. Whereas in many other jurisdictions, Europe most prominently, uh, there is a much larger role for the state. Uh, China, again, uh, has, a, has a presumption that the state will have an interest in all sectors of the economy. Uh, so I don't think you'll get a, a universal definition of this, but there is, there's some common ground, certainly. Uh, and usually where this ends up is that, uh, I suppose, two things. Um, one, uh, the state should not be able to do things by outsourcing that it could not do itself. So if you're not allowed to do X, you shouldn't be allowed to pay someone else to do X as a state. That seems fairly obvious. Uh, and then the second thing is in terms of what you shouldn't be able to do. Uh, for most people, I think they would agree that public sector activities uh, that affect the rights and obligations of individuals uh, should be, those, those decisions, the exercise of discretion should be made by individuals who are accountable, accountable within that public structure. Uh, in most states, but not all, uh, accountable through some kind of democratic process, or at least through some kind of public sector accountability regime. So what are the things that affect fundamental rights? Well, life, right to life is an extreme case. Uh, you should not be able to, uh, to terminate someone's life without that decision uh, being made within a, um, a proper set of structures. And that includes both the military, it also includes the judiciary. Uh, you should not be able to outsource that sort of question. Um, the determination who is an enemy. Um, this is also a, a key question uh, that, that goes back to Schmidt and so on. The idea of what it is to be a state. The fundamental question Schmidt argued is, is the determination who's a friend and who's an enemy. Uh, and so that should also be held within the state. So these, these things I think are pretty clearly inherently governmental. Uh, although as you say, there will be some variation. Uh, but as I've written elsewhere, at least the determination of what is inherently governmental and what is not, that should be an inherently governmental question with some kind of accountability on its own. Uh, to continue this discussion, I mean, we've, we, you mentioned about like certain functions that perhaps need to be considered inherently governmental. But if we think about this question across time, there's certain functions or certain um, acts that might that blur the line between state and private agency. And I'm here thinking about in the Gulf, right? Where you have companies like Emirates Airline, which in, in good times, they serve as essentially as a private company. But when times get tough, the state starts to you know, put its dictate on what it should do. It gives it you know, 
subsidies and so on. So the line between them becomes very blurry if they're private or are they public? And I'm, I'm wondering if you see a, this a similar trend perhaps developing even with the private military sector. You mentioned, I think earlier about this idea of search capacity, right? So like in the states can use these private companies to offload their excess need instead of building their own structure. So especially with like these small states that don't have their own standing army, um, you know, I'm thinking about if, if some state like Dubai could have, you know, uh, an army that in when times are good, it goes around, it serves as a private military company, but when it needs it to serve internally, then it becomes uh, essentially a national army. Um, do you see something like this or is there, is there a possibility of? of yeah, so, so it, all, it already exists. Uh, we've mentioned the Pope and the Swiss Guard. You can also point to the Gurkhas as a kind of outsourced military. Uh, and I do think it's likely to increase uh, in particular as, as security becomes more technologically focused uh, because the, the move to um, reliance on technology, on drones, unmanned aerial vehicles, eventually some kind of autonomous weapon systems, um, that technological leap uh, is going to be both, it's hard for lots of small states in particular to replicate and very tempting for small wealthy states to import. Uh, and so uh, I do think there's a, a real danger that, um, or not a danger, I think it's inevitable that small states will look to these types of um, uh, organized companies that can provide these services for their security. Now, is it a good thing or a bad thing? It will depend on how they're used, what kind of checks and balances are in place. Uh, but uh, I do think that we're likely to see greater reliance on technological fixes um, in the medium term and in the short term, absolutely, on, on the outsourcing of, of public services. Again, you mentioned the Gulf, huge proportions of public services are already outsourced in the Gulf. We've seen uh, the import, the whole scale importation of educational institutions. Uh, I used to work for New York University and went over to NYU Abu Dhabi uh, and met the, um, the various officials who were overseeing the education sector virtually none of whom were Emirati. Uh, and so I think you do have this experience of, of importing because you've got the combination of large resources uh, and not a lot of human capital. Uh, and so the temptation, not the temptation, the, the rational decision to import makes a lot of sense. Uh, and so again, in the short term, I think you'll, you will continue to see that in terms of um, private military security companies and then medium term, maybe more of a reliance on, on technology. Yeah, what you just mentioned, a drone, uh, cyber weapon, uh, it's already part of our podcast, but we are going to look uh, more deeper in the post um, uh, not only about cyber weapon, uh, but also about autonomous weapon system. That is definitely uh, a trend that needs to be taken into consideration. But now, moving from the Gulf uh, to part of the world that we are located currently, uh, in your opinion, what are some of the approaches that country in Southeast Asia are taking to regulate private military? And uh, if I may ask, particularly given the track record for regional cooperation, is there a possibility of, let's say, an Asian mechanism for controlling private military security companies? And that, uh, that kind of future mechanism might even serve as a model for, for a region? Uh, no. <laughs> I think it's I think it's unlikely, uh, and the reason is that both ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, 
and Asia uh, have peddled very slowly on regional agreements. Uh, there are no functioning regional organizations comparable to what we see in Europe with the EU, Africa with the AU, the Americas with the OAS. ASEAN in the context of Asia probably is the strongest of these organizations, but it's, it's, um, it's intentionally weak uh, in terms of any kind of coercive power. ASEAN is very effective as a trade community, as an effort to lower tariffs. Uh, and there are three communities. There's the ASEAN community, the economic community, that's the strongest, uh, but the political security and the socio-cultural communities lag far behind. So I, I don't think you'll see a, a big robust regime to control private military security companies, uh, both for that structural reason, but also because domestically many of these countries do use private military security com companies, at least on the security side. Where I do think there might be some scope for movement is regulation of anti-piracy activities, uh, because there has been a lot of cooperation, uh, not necessarily across ASEAN as a whole, but for example, Singapore, Indonesia, Malaysia in anti-piracy measures. Uh, and as uh, shipping companies rely more on defensive PMSCs, uh, there might be scope for some regulation there. So that, that I would see as a, as a real possibility. Uh, thank you. Now, to end the interview, I want to ask you a question that we plan on asking all of our guests, and that is, what will the future of military and security privatization look like in the coming 30 years? 30 years. Okay, so I think there will still be a role for state-based armies, but as technology advances, um, I think people will eventually move past the idea that armies of men and women are going to be replaced by Terminator style robots walking in formation. I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, there was a report recently from the UK that they, they think one third or one quarter of their soldiers might be robots in the future. I think that's a very, uh, I think that's a very limited uh, way of understanding the impact of technology. What I do think will happen is a lot more of our defense will be high tech. You'll have drones, both in the air, in the water, on land. The question whether they will be armed or not is an open one, uh, but there'll be greater reliance on this technology. Uh, and as that technology becomes more advanced, it becomes harder for public sector entities to develop and control it. Uh, so at the moment, uh, the US and China have uh, very strong uh, research bases in this area. Singapore has been exploring it. Uh, but I don't expect countries around the world to be at the forefront. Rather, they'll be trying to buy off-the-shelf uh, materials. Uh, and so I think you will certainly see technology playing a greater role. Uh, and as the industry matures, it's possible that you will see sort of dominant actors emerge, much, much as sort of social media, um, uh, buying and selling online. We've got the Facebooks and Twitter of this world. We've got the... Um, Amazons and the Alibabas of this world, I think you might see a more a legitimate um, private security regime emerge in terms of a global actor. And then it'll be the real question to what extent publics around the world uh, and in our region are willing to outsource their security to these companies, given that what that means is you are delegating significant public power and indeed risking the possibility that that uh, that control over that power could be at some point taken away from you if it didn't suit uh, the actor that you've retained to uh, protect you from it. <laughs>
from, from other threats. So short answer is uh, technology will increase, companies will become more important. Uh, and my hope is that publics will be aware of this, listening to podcasts like yours, thinking critically about it and making sure that their governments ensure that when force is used on their behalf or threatened on their behalf, there's an accountability regime to make sure it's done so appropriately. It was an absolute pleasure having you with us today, Professor Chesterman. Um, I hope you enjoy this too. And thank you. I want to, in the end, like thank you, you know, to you and all our listeners uh, for tuning in. And also a shout out to our team, without which this podcast would not have been possible at MEI, uh, namely uh, Jamila uh, Li Chen and the Events and Communication Team, MEI Associate Director Carl Skadian. And yeah, everyone who tuned in, uh, please keep on following us on the various social media platforms and send us comments and feedbacks. We would love to hear back from you. In closing, I want to plug in our next podcast, which would be with a founder of a private security company that's actually transitioning into cybersecurity. So until next time, thank you, everyone.